You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Welcome to the Regent College Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Anderson, standing in for Claire Perini. And today our guest is Dr. Ian Proven. If you know Regent College, then you probably know Ian. He's been the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies since 1997. His Old Testament and hermeneutics courses are popular and core courses in the Regent curriculum, and his book studies on the Psalms, Genesis, Daniel, and Kings, as well as his seminars, are also popular courses at the college. Ian is a sought-after lecturer around the world and has published a number of books recently, including Discovering Genesis, Against the Grain, Seriously Dangerous Religion, and A Biblical History of Israel. Ian's next book is titled Seriously Literal Interpretation, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture, and it's hoped to come out in late 2017 to coincide with the 500th anniversary of the day Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the Wittenberg door. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's a great pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Um, Ian, I've had the pleasure of sitting in a number of your classes. Um, A lot of your teaching at Regent has focused on the importance of hermeneutics, and that was something that was really important to me. Um, hermeneutics, though, is a word I hadn't really encountered before I came to Regent. So I was wondering if you could give us just a little basic primer on what that means. Well, hermeneutics really just means interpretation, but we like to have posh words on the, in, on the inside of these conversations. Um, and sometimes they're useful as shorthand. But r- people shouldn't be intimidated by the word. It simply means everything to do with how we read text generally, And then, of course, the Bible, in our case in particular. Um, So it's not half as scary as it sounds. Okay. Um, I grew up in a tradition that really emphasized the reading of Scripture and often just picking it up and reading it and kind of seeing what you get from the text. Um, How would you bring the study of hermeneutics into that kind of an interpretive framework? Well, I think the church has always been concerned about how we read and how we can assure ourselves that our reading is a good one and a right one um, and not a wrong one and a dangerous one. So all the way through church history, there have been all sorts of attempts to regulate reading to produce good ends rather than bad ones. Um, And that's really, I think, what hermeneutics as a discipline helps us with. So it's about articulating good rules of reading that work well, that actually get you to the heart of what the text is saying, which is, of course, is what Bible readers want to do, but they may not necessarily have thought terribly hard or been helped to think about what that looks like. So it's partly a consciousness-raising exercise. What counts as a good reading and why? Um, How did you come to the study of hermeneutics? What was it that drew you into it in the first place? Um, Well, in my case, it came out of enormous confusion about how to read. Um, Like most other people, I suppose I had been given some rules of reading, but they didn't necessarily seem to hang together very well or to work very well. And being a curious person, I was all, really from quite near the beginning of my conscious Christian life, I was asking questions, yes, but how do you know that? Or why is that the best way of doing it? And some r- ways of reading seemed to me just intuitively unhelpful and even bizarre. So the question of method, the question of rigor, um, was one that I began to think about really when I was quite young. Um, and how did that process unfold? What what led you into the interpretive path that you've taken? 
Well, a large part of the answer to that question is that already at Regent College when I arrived here, there was a course in biblical criticism, uh, which I was immediately asked to take over. And so suddenly I had to write a course on, on biblical criticism. And immediately I thought, that's too narrow. It really needs to be on biblical hermeneutics and criticism because biblical criticism typically refers to modern biblical interpretation. And I thought, well, that's great, but it really isn't a big enough canvas to to do that, to, to understand that well. Um, so a large part of my interest actually arose out of necessity um, in terms of how things worked out anyway. Um, when you talk about biblical criticism, there has been some conversation about um, the idea of, of critical approaches to scripture becoming essentially a new elite, a new elitism, um, a new priesthood in some ways in terms of the way that we approach scripture. How is it that you tie together your commitment? I know you're committed to lay people being engaged in scripture and also your commitment to a scholarly reading um, and a critical reading. Yes, I, I suppose I don't really think that critical reading is fundamentally about scholarly reading, except insofar as scholars might help you to read critically. But I would have thought that critical reading is something we all ought to be interested in, and not just as Bible readers. When I read a newspaper article, if I'm not engaging critically, then I'm simply going to be a victim, as it were, of whatever that journalist wants me to think or to feel or to do. So I think critical reading is actually a, an important skill that human beings ought to be developing. And since scripture is for us our most important text in terms of shaping belief and life, I would have thought, I would like to think, that, that we would all be interested in engaging critically with it, by which I don't mean criticizing it. I mean this responsible approach that, that we're, we're talking about here. I don't regard that as elitist, and I think it's actually only a culture that's already deeply anti-intellectual that could possibly regard it as being elitist. Because if you go back in church history, you see people like Augustine, exhorting his readers, his ordinary church folks, um, to be thinking and to be practicing and to be engaged at a, at a high level. So the idea that we ought to expect that the Bible is different from other texts and you can just pick it up somehow and immediately and intuitively understand everything it has to say, I think is it's evidently not true. Mm. Um, you're writing a new book on the Protestant approach to interpretation, the Reformed approach to interpretation. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, I can tell you a little bit about it. It's a very large project. Um, the short version of the answer would be that we are coming up to the 500th anniversary of the Wittenberg event. Um, we are arriving at this anniversary in a context where I think that within Protestantism worldwide, there's a bit of a, a crisis of confidence with regard to Protestant approaches to Scripture. Um, this manifests itself in various ways. So I've set myself to answer the question, are Protestant hermeneutics still viable in the 21st century? And I've written a very large book to try to answer that question comprehensively. Mm -hmm. 
So when you talk about Protestant hermeneutics, Protestant interpretation, what's the core of that for you? What are some marking characteristics? Well, they would be the famous solas of the Reformation and centrally, in this case, sola scriptura. So can scripture function as the primary, ultimate, canonical rule of what I believe and how I live? Or is it insufficient in various ways, requiring other authorities or entities to tell us how to do it in a right way? Um, how does all of that question of authority intersect with what I've just been talking about in terms of critical engagement? Um, that business of critical engagement lay right at the heart of the Reformation as well. Um, so in the midst of all that turmoil, these questions of authority and interpretation were, were central. Um, so sola scriptura, what that means, how we best understand it, how we practice it, lies right at the heart of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And how would, you, how would you define sola scriptura for people today? Well, I think it is best thought of as in terms of ultimate authority. Uh, the reformers themselves did not believe that all tradition was simply bad. Uh, in fact, they went out of their way to insist that they themselves held firmly to the great creeds of the church, that they themselves were not the innovators in the 16th century. They claimed their opponents were actually the innovators. So they, they, they perceived themselves as standing within Christian tradition with a capital T. But what they did insist was that individual traditions with a small t had to be assessed against the canonical rule of scripture. And if they were found wanting in that regard, that they should be uh, rejected. Um, so I don't think sola scriptura means we only ever read our Bibles and we never pay attention to anything else. And I don't think it means we reject the whole heritage of the Christian faith that lies behind us. But sola scriptura does mean that when it comes down to it, your ultimate authority is scripture and not something else. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are some ways that you have personally encountered that challenge where you've met up with Scripture and have found that your own traditions or your own um, practices have been have needed reformation? Well, I suppose like everyone else, uh, when we're inducted into the Christian faith, we, we more or less accept the version of it that people um, give us. It's inevitable that we do. Um, and then over the course of time, as we read scripture and as we speak with other Christians and maybe learn a bit of church history, we develop certain doubts about some of the things that we've been told. Um, I suppose for myself, one of the questions that quickly occurred to me after I began to really read the Old Testament in a conscious, disciplined way was the whole question of whether it was really true that our souls are innately immortal, because that was something I believe I was certainly taught. And I came to doubt very much that Scripture taught us that, which then raised the question, well, where did it come from then? And what does that mean if it's a part of our Christian tradition but does not appear to be compatible with Scripture? So that would be a good example of how, how it impacted on, on me personally. And where did you come to on that? Oh, I think the idea that we're innately immortal souls comes from Plato. I don't think it comes from Scripture. And I think it's one of the unfortunate things that has come across 
the bridge that was created in the early centuries of the church, the main conversation partner of the church in the Roman Empire was, was Greek philosophy. And inevitably so, I think. But when you build a bridge to culture, things come back the other way. And if you're not thinking critically and discriminating, then some things come back the other way that you shouldn't believe. And uh, that, for me, that's one very clear example of something we shouldn't believe. You've been studying the life and thought of Martin Luther, who was somebody who stood against his culture in many ways and also in continuity with his culture. Um, what have you learned about his life that was challenging to you, interesting, um, new? Um, I suppose I have a much more rounded view of Luther than I had before I began this project. As you dive into history, it's been my recurring discovery that history is always much more interesting than, than you were led to believe because it's more complicated than you were led to believe. So Luther is a marvelous character. I mean, it's not that uh, everything he said I agree with or everything he did I approve of. And in fact, he could be a very caustic and rather difficult person. Um, but nonetheless, the raw courage of the man when you read the story and, and you realize how vulnerable he was um, for all those early years um, and for many years, and yet his doggedness in in sticking to his principles um, and not in a not in a way that was you know, people sometimes I think believe that Luther was innately just a grumpy antagonistic person but my impression is that he really strove with with seriousness in the early years to to find a way ahead that was more conciliatory. Um, he was certainly willing to apologize for things when he felt he had gone too far, which he very often did. Uh, his rhetoric was, was sometimes quite inflated. Um, so I think I have a more empathetic um, understanding of Luther than previously, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And Have you been studying Calvin as well? Yes, Calvin is another major figure in my book, um, although I've read more on Luther's life, and I think, and I may be wrong in this, I think it may well be the case that we have more information on Luther's life. Um, it's Calvin's ideas that, that it's not that I haven't, I haven't read about Calvin's life, I have, but um, I feel as if I know Luther better. Um, and that just may be because of where my attention has been drawn with Luther being the founding figure of the thing that I'm interested in. But uh. If you could sit down with him or challenge him on one point, what would you ask him about? What would you, what would you push back on? Well, the obvious one would be his politics. <laughs> um, of course, it's a matter of controversy, the way in, in which uh, he eventually reacted to the peasants' revolt and all of that. And so the question of whether the gospel doesn't require more attentiveness to social matters, matters of injustice and so on, and whether um, the gospel does not require a more dynamic approach, that would be 
I think many Protestants would want to talk to Luther about that and try to understand what he was thinking. And then, of course, famous, perhaps even more famously, is his attitude toward the Jews. Um, I mean, to say that he was a man of his time is, is only to condemn the whole culture, really. It's not to excuse Luther. So the whole history of European anti-Semitism that, that um, is not just a feature of the 16th century, but comes all the way down into modern times. And although it is true, I think, that people have not made enough of an effort to understand the whole picture with regard to the 16th century and the Jews, um, because many of the many of the things that were said and done, um, they, they have a rhetorical edge to them. But when you look at the actual relationships that people had with Jews, you get a very different, a rather different, not a very different, a rather different picture. But nonetheless, these two issues remain for us several hundred years later looking back we 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 want to ask questions about both of those things i think mm -hmm. when you look at somebody like luther or somebody like calvin people who god used powerfully some would argue in the church and others would say used destructively um does it make you reflect on your own your own life and your own scholarship does it make you wonder where god is using you where um where you might look back and think differently about the way that you've approached things well, I mean, one does look back on one's life at my age and ask those kinds of questions. Um, I tend to avoid questions of significance and meaning with regard to my own life because it almost seems presumptuous. And in any case, I don't think I have any great clarity on the matter. Um, I tend myself simply to give that to God and to say that... I'm not even going to try and make a judgment on that because it's not my job even to exercise judgment on myself, really. Um, so, um, you know, one hopes that one learns by reading the great Christian figures of the past, both in terms of what you should imitate and what you should not. Um, but as to the significance of one's own tiny contributions to to the life of the church and stuff, I... I, I don't think I even want to offer commentary on that, actually. So That's probably wise. <laughs> yes, probably is wise. So at least I've learned wisdom, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you're exploring the Reformation next summer in a couple of courses. Uh, can you tell me about those, what you're hoping to accomplish with them? Yes. Um, I'm teaching an on-campus course here in spring school um, entitled Standing Where Luther and Calvin Stood. And that is really going to be the first public exploration of the issues that I'm writing about in the book. So it's going to be a course based on the research that led to the book. Um, and it's deliberately timed, of course, to co coincide more or less in terms of a few months' distance from the, the October Reformation anniversary. Um, so we'll we'll simply be going through as a class ten questions that arise in the book and exploring those. Uh, the second course is a little bit more ambitious, and of course, whether it happens depends entirely on whether enough people want to go because it's a tour of Reformation Germany, in which we will visit most of the places that are important for understanding Luther's story. So 
his birthplace, where he died, Worms, of course, the importance of the Diet of Worms, where he became essentially a hunted man in the aftermath of Worms. Eisenach, where he was uh, kidnapped, as it were, although it wasn't really a kidnapping. It was a kidnapping by friendly forces to keep him safe. Um, Erfurt, where he had his thunderstorm experience, well, near Erfurt, and where he was ordained as a monk and lived as a monk, and Wittenberg, of course, where where the Reformation was was really focused and centered. Um, so that tour is called "Walking Where Luther Walked." So, um, if if one were to take both courses, one would have at the end of it a very rounded impression, I think, of Luther and the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, you've spent some time in Germany, studying and living. What are some of your favorite sites? Where do you find yourself um, moved? Well, my wife and I really love Erfurt, and of course that's where we did spend two sabbaticals in 2012 and 2015. Um, Erfurt is a very lovely little um, city with a a reasonably undamaged town centre, so it's still rather medieval. Somehow it survived bombardment by Napoleon and all the carnage of you know, the Second World War. Um, and of course, it's, it's, it's the, apart from Wittenberg, it's the central Luther place in terms of where he spent most time and what formed him and what led him to be the person he was later. So Erfurt is wonderful. Uh, Wittenberg, by the time we get there, will be wonderful once again, but... It really did suffer quite a lot of deterioration um, up until the the reunification of Germany, and they've been the government has been ploughing a lot of money into the reconstruction there, precisely because of the Luther anniversary. So, Wittenberg will, I'm sure, be gleaming by the time that we get there in June next year. Um, so those are the two places, but then Eisenach, the Wartburg, you know, where Luther translated the New Testament into German, is still a striking place. Um, so I think it will be a great trip, and I'm looking forward to introducing people to places that I actually know quite well personally. It's not just a matter of historical interest. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're moving up to that 500th anniversary, do you see um, hope, and maybe you would disagree with that word, but do you see potential for um, the church to be moving back into a place of unity? Or do you see that the breach between the Protestant and the Catholic churches and the many breaches that have happened within the Protestant church since then um, are sort of irreversible? I think a lot depends on what we mean by unity. I don't think it is practical practicable or reasonable to expect that the institutional church worldwide will ever again be unified at that level. But the interesting thing about the Reformation emphases is that if if we look at the papal encyclicals of the 20th century from Divino of Flanty Spiritu in the 40s through to the most recent pontifical biblical commission statements, What's striking is how far they have moved in what I would call a reformed direction. 
so that many of the substantive issues that, that were the presenting issues in the 16th century and were for centuries afterwards are not actually any longer. I mean, if you look at these encyclicals in terms of what they say about how we read scripture, for example, and what the place of allegorical reading might be, it's very striking how cautious those uh, encyclicals are about allegorical reading and how insistent they are on the importance of scholarship and, and serious critical attention to text. Um, so at that level, there's more hope that we could and are once again gathering around core truths that we can agree about and that the number of those core truths is perhaps greater than it used to be. Um, and that's just as well because in many ways post-Christian Western culture is moving very, very fast in a, in a quite contrary direction. And I don't think that Christians can afford to be at odds um, over over very much, you know. So I hope that we can indeed gather around these core issues, not just of the creed, but also about how we read Scripture and how we treat Scripture vis-a-vis -vis tradition and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to something we talked about a little earlier, which is this issue of just picking up the text and reading it. The Protestant Church um, has often referenced the idea of perspicuity of Scripture, the idea that you can just pick it up and read it. It's clear to the reader. Um, is that an accurate understanding of perspicuity, or do you feel that there's actually more to it? Yes, I, I don't think that perspicuity to the reformers meant to the reformers uh, how you just put it, which I do think. I do think that how you put it is how many Protestants think of the matter. But the Reformers did not believe that if you simply picked up the Bible, somehow you could make sense of it. For one thing, most Christians of that time wouldn't have been literate enough anyway to pick up the Bible and do that. So there's a whole question of who was reading. And then did the Reformers think that you know, without uh, education, sufficient education, that you could do it well? Well, no, they didn't. And in fact, one of their great criticisms of the Radical Reformation was precisely that there, there was so much danger in it because people were saying that they were being led by the Spirit to read this and that out of the text. And the Reformers were very critical of that approach because they felt it was a very wrong idea of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit to be setting Scripture against the Spirit in that way. Um, so their response to the, the, their insistence on sola scriptura was immediately to launch mass literacy programs, to begin schools, um, to insist that people um, at university read, learned Hebrew and Greek and learned to read their te biblical texts in the original languages. So, and of course, in Luther's case, to translate the, the whole Bible from the original languages into German so that people had something, uh, at least uh, in something close to the language they spoke, that they could engage with. Martin Bootser, who was one of the Strasbourg reformers, actually at one point wrote that he could see a day coming when the, the common language of every Christian city in Europe would be Hebrew. 
So you don't get the impression from all of that that they thought perspicuity meant you just pick it up and it's intuitively obvious to you what it means. What they meant was that anyone who could read and, or had, and, and had a good translation and had enough guidance in terms of how not to read, so rudimentary rules, that any such person picking up, say, the Gospel of Mark would immediately, after careful reading, at least understand the, the fundamentals of what the Gospel of Mark was about. That's really what they meant by perspicuity. And it was over against the idea that Scripture is intrinsically obscure and that you need the priest or the pope or somebody else to tell you even the most basic things about it. So perspicuity was a doctrine over against another set of ideas, and I think it's largely misunderstood by low church Protestants in the, in the modern period, actually. Do you think it could have gone otherwise? Do you think there's any way for that doctrine to develop without ending up in a situation where people are going to read the text for themselves and assert their independent right to interpret? Well, I think if people had taken the whole of the Reformation seriously, they would, like the Reformers, have um, spoken about the proper place of tradition, the proper place of the creeds, the importance of education and right reading, and all of that would have been part of the emphasis. But for all sorts of reasons that we probably don't have time to get into in this conversation, for all sorts of reasons, the, the whole thing span out of control in a way. And, of course, the individualism that we now have is the end point of that spinning out of control because the idea, ideas like Sola Scriptura and Perspicuity have been abstracted from the larger Reformation idea and they've taken on a life of their own and they've been put to a use that I don't believe the Reformers would have recognized. Mm -hmm. um, how does this impact us in our church today when somebody's standing up and preaching, when somebody's leading a small group and you're dealing with um, not only questions about your own interpretation, but questions about the interpretation of the other people listening to you or participating in that with you. Um, how do we bring that under some kind of authority in the absence of actual coherent authority within the church? Well, I mean, I would like to. I would like to think that we do affirm the doctrine of perspicuity, by which we don't mean that I myself have 2020 vision on everything that Scripture is. So perspicuity doesn't mean it's all clear to me. What it means is we all commit to the idea that Scripture is perspicuous because it claims to be, and it's an apostolic and dominical teaching that it is perspicuous. And therefore, and this is what the Reformers certainly believed, that the Holy Spirit guiding us, we ought to be striving all the time to come to the best right understanding. And that if I disagree with you or you disagree with me, that there's a problem there that has to be worked through because that's not something we should be casual about. I mean, we also shouldn't kill each other over it. But the response to the not killing is sometimes a kind of soft pluralism that simply says, well, what the heck, you know, everyone's bound to disagree. And that's dangerous. That's not right. It seems to me that we have to work out why we disagree and we have to work for a better understanding. And we have to do it in the context of all the Christians who have gone before us. Um, so it is the church as a whole 
that's involved in this process. And um, we don't begin with a, a blank slate. There is such a thing as tradition. There is such a thing as the way that the ways that the church has read. There are such things as creeds that give you the major doctrinal points that define the story. Um, we ought not to be in this individualistic confusion. And a lot of it has got to do with our own individual unwillingness to give up our control and even to listen to other people when they want to correct us, I think. When that plays out in a practical way, in your own church or in your own life, what are some areas where you've found that, although you do fundamentally disagree with people, you've you've chosen, you know, actually I'm going to submit in this area and I'm going to, um, yeah, I'm going to allow the discernment of the group or the discernment of the tradition within the church to overrule what I personally have come to conclude is... Um, Yes, I mean, that's a very practical question that all thoughtful Christians face because as soon as you begin to be thoughtful and to educate yourself about what other Christians outside your group have thought, some of that is going to strike you as plausible and likely to be true. So now you have a practical question to face. Are these issues serious enough that you simply cannot just go on saying, I agree to disagree, and there are issues like that. Or are they of a lesser scale? And, and so judgment is required there. Um, so I've been, I've been part of church communities, for example, that take a much more conservative view on the role of women in church than I personally believe is justified. But... I've made the judgment that so much else that's going on in the church is really great and that in any case how that plays out in practice is not, as, as I would think of it, oppressive or cruel or whatever and that the, the idea is held more theoretically in a way than practically and so I've made a judgment that I don't think it's, it's, it's terribly productive in that context to make that immediately a big issue. I have lots of people, lots of friends who disagree with me, with me profoundly on the business of baptism because I am a firm believer in uh, pedo-baptism, baptizing children of believers. And I've almost always hung out with Baptists my entire life. So, you know, we seem to have negotiated that quite well. They tend to think that's much more of a central issue than, than, than I do, interestingly, although I have very firm, firm convictions on the matter. Um, so, you know, I think that the whole evangelical movement um, in the modern period from the 18th century onwards has always tried to make these discriminations between the weightier matters and, and the, the ones that can be set aside for the sake of mission at least, um, even if at the level of church discipline you might hold that line, but you're not going to stop working with the Presbyterians on the mission field. So at least to that level, maximally, I think we should try and work together. But then, of course, the problem comes when some people think an issue is core and other people don't think it's core. Mm -hmm. There's no, not very many easy ways of resolving that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that baptism is a good example because if you're working in mission together with people and then you come to a point where you're questioning whether to baptize the children of the people who have come to faith through your ministry. That's actually a core issue. 
Um, so how would you, how would you suggest going about having that conversation, not necessarily bringing people over to your side, but approaching those issues? Well, I think you have to have the conversation as a conversation of conviction. I mean, I would want to try and persuade my Baptist friends that they're mistaken. <laughs> uh, and I've spent decades trying to do so without much visible effect in most cases. But And, and therefore, the fact of the matter is that, that uh, even after a good conversation held in a friendly but robust way, very likely you will still find yourself disagreeing on this matter. And when it comes to how your community of faith functions, that becomes important. So it may well be that you do need to have a Presbyterian church in that community and a Baptist church in that community. But the question is beyond that, though, what is the relationship going to be between those two congregations and how do they think of themselves as part of the larger church? I don't think it's a disaster that there are different denominations in different churches. I mean, arguably, that was the very engine that drove global mission, actually, in the post-Reformation period. So I don't see, I don't see unification at the institutional level as some great and obvious good that we should sacrifice everything else to attain. I think that committed, neighborly, loving pluralism is a perfectly adequate way of expressing the unity of the church given that in this period of life between the two comings of Christ, we will disagree with conviction with each other. Um, I don't see any other alternative, actually, to friendly, neighborly pluralism, in which you think of yourself as part of the one church while thinking that the other person is mistaken, very likely. As you are finishing up your current book, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to not working on this book anymore. <laughs> um, there comes a point near the end of any project when you really just need to be done with it so you can not do that for a while and get some distance from it. And this has been a very demanding, all-absorbing, at times impossible project. Um, to bring to completion and I'm quite looking forward to not having to bend every waking moment to thinking about that last footnote um, so um, I don't even know after I'm done with it what I'm going to do except enjoy Christmas and then think about it when the new year turns um, It seems that between this one and your last book Seriously Dangerous Religion you've covered a lot of your core teaching at Regent um, the Old Testament material, also this hermeneutics material. Um, do you anticipate that you'll be moving into a new a, a new area or that there are other avenues that you'd like to open up further? Um, it's a great question, but quite honestly, I have not really made any decisions about that. Um, I imagine with my teaching that I will need to adjust some of it in light of the fact I now have published material. So I'll need to think about how that works because I don't believe that lecturing out straight out of a published book is necessarily a fun thing for students. Um, so there are impl implications about that that will need to be explored. But 
Ever since I came to Regent College, I've been trying to clear my desk of commitments um, made to other people to write certain books, precisely so that I can allow book projects to emerge, as it were, that I believe I should be working on. Um, and so the next thing will be to identify what the next thing is that I believe I should be working on. And that will not happen before December the 31st. I can assure you of that. So, What's come out of, as you've been writing this book, because I talked to you in the early chapters, but not f- further on, what's come out to you as, as really core things that you might not have noticed or thought of as core previously? Or what's just reinforced what you already believed? Um, well, one of the most interesting ones to me is the great similarities between allegorical reading on the one hand and uh, post-structuralism on the other. Mm, interesting. The one seems to me just to be a modern, there's nothing new under the sun kind of yeah. repristination of, of the other. Um, so that, that was quite interesting. I came across some quotes in both zones that just made that connection really, really clear. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And I, I think that just re returning to a lot of the things that I hadn't really thought about for a long time, like perspicuity and so on, and, and trying to work out whether all those critics were right or not, and the whole there's a whole slew of books, as you know, mm-hmm. Charles Taylor, Brad Gregory, they're all in the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're all the latest version of the Roman Catholic critique ever since the Council of Trent to now. And the funny thing is that in the case of Charles Taylor, people don't even realize it is a Roman Catholic critique. They go, it's Charles Taylor. He's, like, famous, you know, and he gets a almost a free pass in terms of religious identity. But, you know, these are two humongously large books, that both of them, both of which in their different ways blame the Reformation for you know, the parlous state that we're going to find And I, I just think that's wrong. I just think it's simplistic. And I also think we've heard it all before. I don't think it's even very new. You can go back and find Catholic apologists of the 18th century saying more or less the same thing. So it's not that I disagree with their um, horror at many aspects of the culture we live in, but to think that the Reformation, more than, say, the printing press, was responsible for this. As soon as you have a printing press, the church was never going to be able to control ideas. And the fact that there were Reformation, there, there were Reformation ideas is certainly true. But why did those ideas grab Europe in a way that previous dissident movements had been pretty easily stomped out? The answer is because Luther said it on Tuesday and by by the next Tuesday it was being read in Paris. That's why. So I just don't buy it. And I have a whole section on that because I just... I yeah. just don't buy it. So. Is there anything in the Reformation, apart from obviously the violence that came out of mm. um, a lot of sects within it, that you think actually was regrettable and it's just unfortunate that it didn't go differently? Uh, you know, honestly, Amy, no. I believe the Reformation was necessary and good and recovered earlier apostolic, post-apostolic 
truths and approaches that were in danger of being lost. And that although Luther and Calvin and all those guys were people of their time and they did things, Luther with the Peasants' Revolt or Calvin with Servetus, that I think were appalling. Um, the thing is, though, had had a Catholic city got a hold of Servetus, they would have done the same thing. It was It was the way it was at that time. If you were a heretic... You know, that's the way it was. Then the Anabaptists got the rough end of both Protestants and Catholics all the way th- all through Europe. So, you know, there were things that we absolutely should not repeat, and there were things said in a tone and substance that you rather cringe from. But with all of the flaws, the normal flaws of humanness that you read in the Bible as well, with all of that, I I can't imagine where we would be now had the Reformation not happened. Because I suspect that what would have happened would have been an even more revolutionary, robust secularism. I think what happened in France, it's, just, it's at least as arguable that what happened in France would have happened all over Europe had not the Reformation given people a different way of being Christians and... Um, that permitted religious forces still to dominate the the ground, you know. Um, I mean, what happened in France was that having successfully repressed the Protestants, the dissent had nowhere else to go. And the French Revolution was the result, essentially. That's my reason what happened in France. So uh, it, 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 they were very scared about it happening in Britain. And that's why they launched on their great reform program in the aftermath of the French Revolution. But that was largely grounded in Protestant principles and theology and stuff. So would they have been able to do it with a Catholic monarch? Probably not. So I, you know, it's all mind, it's all thought experiments. But it's very easy to trace a direct line between what was and what is and say that caused that. But I just, I find that kind of argumentation just to be unsatisfying. So. All right. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming in today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening to Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to hear more content like this, you can find lectures, conferences, and entire courses at regentaudio.com. And to find out more information on Regent College's degrees and upcoming events, go to regent-college.edu.